Welcome to another episode of This Rounds on Me. In this podcast, I'll discuss interesting medical cases and explore the concepts, physiology, and medicine surrounding them. Pre-episode warning. This episode will contain multiple literary references. This episode is called The Tale of Lady Windermere. If you're ever fortunate enough to work a pulmonary service at a major academic institution, you are bound to come across your own Lady Windermere. Despite the regal-sounding name, this is not a good thing. And while the more sarcastic among us may think of it negatively, it is not meant as a slight either, pun intended. Lady Windermere refers to the namesake of a famous Oscar Wilde play, Lady Windermere's Fan, one that I have never seen or read. So those of you who are literary giants, please forgive my synopsis. Also, if that really is a problem, I would love to recommend a great audiobook service instead of this podcast, and I'll tell you about it as soon as they decide to sponsor me. This synopsis is more focused on the character of Lady Windermere because, again, this is a medical podcast and not a literary review. As a medical eponym, it was used to signal a very proper, fastidious woman. In this context, fastidious is in reference to a specific line where Lady Windermere refuses to shake the hand of one of the lords. This is extrapolated to the Victorian era's kind of prim and proper ladies, where spitting, and more importantly coughing, were considered rude and unladylike. The eponym was coined in a famous chest article describing what is now politically correctly termed as MAC, Mycobacterium avium complex, or NTM, non-tuberculous mycobacterium. These diseases are most commonly found in frail, elderly white women with weak coughs, thus the eponym. However, the eponym has come under fire. Even at the time of the original article, it was already being critiqued for being inaccurate to the literature. Some literary scholars who had a much stronger feeling about Lady Windermere than the physicians described her as a vivacious young woman. Powering through the mild uncomfortableness that I feel imagining someone receiving that letter, glossing over the fact that I'm sure there were accompanied by some very disturbing illustrations, we will return to the medicine. This eponym has not been without consequence. It has also been accused for biasing the diagnosis. Even though Lady Windermere-esque woman is probably the most common demographic, it is by no means pathognomonic to the illness. So, after listening to my literary rambling in some historical context, let's go see the patient together, shall we? She's a 60-something-year-old white woman. I did say that it is the most common demographic. A diminutive cough racks her thin body. She's not quite a LOL and NAD, a little old lady in no apparent distress, for those of us who have not yet read The House of God. Vote now on your phones if you'd like me to do an episode discussing why you should read it, even though the narrator does seem a bit like an asshole. 
But anyway, she's not that far from it. She's more of a LNTOL and MD, or a little not-that-old lady in mild distress. Don't worry if you don't know that one. This is even less of a real term. I just made that one up. But if you'd like to use it, it's all yours. This is the fourth patient that I've seen this week. Their ages vary slightly from the late 30s to early 70s, but I think the politically correct way of saying this is they have a very, very thin body habitus. Not a single one was over 100 pounds. In the extra bright lights of the hospital's fluorescent bulbs, they were virtually translucent. Every cough, you could hear the gunk rattling around in their chests. It sounded like a game of boggle. Am I dating myself with that reference? Anyway, so now that we have an image of what some of these patients look like, we can learn a bit about the disease together because this is not something I learned much about in medical school. A bit of a disclaimer, this next part is aggressively sciencey, but this is a medical podcast, so you get what you subscribe to. And by the way, please subscribe. NTM, or non-tuberculous mycobacterium, composed over 200 species of mycobacterium, but Medically, it is a convenient catch-all term that is mostly used to describe the common types of mycobacterium. Before I list a few species which are NTMs, it'll be easier for me to tell you ones that are not because there's 200 of them. Obviously, the classic mycobacterium tuberculosis is not an MTM, but there are a few other members of this phylum, or is it maybe genius? It's been a long time since middle school taxonomy. Our producer, Allie, is going to run a fact check for me on that. So actually, the phylum is actinobacteria. The genus is mycobacterium, and these others are different species. Okay, thanks, Al. Well, I guess there are a few other members of the species mycobacterium that are not NTMs. That are mycobacterium bovis, mycobacterium africanum, and Microbacterium microti. So just because its name doesn't have tuberculosis in it does not make it an NTM. Oh, and one other weird one that is also not an MTM is Mycobacterium leprae, but thankfully the rest of the weirdly named Mycobacteriums are all considered MTMs. And because I'm all about completeness and also giving myself challenging words to potentially mess up, I'll list some of the common MTMs too. The most common and most important is Mycobacterium avium complex, or MAC. This is the big one. A few others are Mycobacterium kansesi and Mycobacterium abscessus. There are many, many more, which I will not torture you or myself by listing. Okay, from these, there are four clinical syndromes that MTM can cause. A progressive pulmonary disease that causes bronchiectasis. This is mostly what we'll talk about today. But also superficial lymphadenitis, which is more common in children, disseminated disease, which usually occurs in severely immunocompromised individuals, and occasionally skin or soft tissue infections from direct inoculation. So even though we're mostly talking about the pulmonary manifestations, I think it's important to briefly touch on disseminated mycobacterium avium complex because of its history. It's probably the most well-known of the MTMs, during the beginning of the HIV-AIDS epidemic, this is a common condition presenting in patients with a CD4 count of less than 50. It was, and still is, considered an AIDS-defining illness. However, with the advent of effective antiretroviral therapy, this presentation is seen far less common in the U.S. now. 
So back to MTMs and pulmonary. MTMs are ubiquitous in the environment, which means they are everywhere. So what prevents us from constantly being infected with them? This is a very good question, one that hasn't entirely been answered. But the current theory is that people become infected through sort of a perfect storm scenario. You're exposed, but because these bacteria have low virulence, you need to be immunocompromised and or have decreased bacterial clearance. Now, you may be asking, Ben, you're throwing a lot of complicated phrases around, but what the hell are you talking about? So, what that means is MTM is everywhere, but it kind of sucks at getting you sick. But if your immune system isn't working well, or your lungs aren't getting rid of it, it'll just sit there and eventually invade and get you sick. So back to our focus on pulmonary manifestations of NTMs. There are two groups of patients who are affected by this, those with underlying lung disease and those without. In patients with underlying lung disease, things like smoking or bronchiectasis from cystic fibrosis or COPD or even past TB, these create area of damaged lung that give the mycobacterium a place to grow. This happens slowly. So by the time these patients have symptoms, the findings on CT or X-ray can be extensive with huge holes and cavities in the lungs. The presenting symptoms are pretty similar to TB, cough, fatigue, weight loss, and sputum production. But the true Lady Windermere's are patients without underlying lung disease. These are patients that are the hiccup in the theory. They are not immunocompromised, and they do not have any diagnosis of underlying lung disease. This is why it originally received the Lady Windermere moniker. It was thought that it was due to insufficient cough clearance due to self-induced cough suppression, i.e. they didn't want to cough. On imaging, this appears as multiple small nodules in cylindrical bronchiectasis and is referred to as nodular bronchiectatic MAC lung disease. I'm not going to hurt myself or you by trying to explain the CT scan, but I've included a link to an example in the description. While there have been some observed patterns in the patient population, for example, these patients tend to be taller, skinnier, postmenopausal women, and there's a higher incidence of PES excavatum and occasionally CFTR conductance regulator mutations. These are not universal characteristics of these patients, they're just trends. And so far, no studies have shown a specific gene or causal relationship between these morphologic observations and increased susceptibility of MAC. These are just kind of demographic trends. So we've kind of been ranging far and wide in this episode, so let's refocus a moment before we talk about treatment. Lady Windermere syndrome is pulmonary NTB, usually MAC, that occurs in people without known lung problems, and if left untreated, causes nodules, cavitations, and bronchiectasis, which is damage to the bronchi, causing this abnormal widening and decreased mucus clearance. If that sounds bad, it's because it is. The mucociliary elevator is vital for clearing bacteria, foreign bodies, etc. from your lungs. So when it's not working, you get recurrent infections, and then you get this vicious cycle where these recurrent infections and the NTB destroy the lungs, creating more bronchiectasis and even worse clearance, and it just happens again and again. And the lungs end up looking like terrible bullous emphysema 
or probably a better analogy, is Swiss cheese. So in addition to constantly getting lung infections, pulmonary function declines, and then these people struggle to breathe. So how do we treat MTB? Or a better question is, do we treat it? The answer is sometimes yes and sometimes no. Or as my internal medicine tutor used to say, it's depend. While it can become quite awful if left untreated, these are by definition slow-growing mycobacteria. And the treatment takes a long time. And some medications have difficult side effects. So not everyone needs to be treated. Usually, if there are cavities, or if you get positive results from sputum smear, it means that the disease will progress and should be treated. However, this is kind of a loose guideline, and everything should be taken in context of the patient's clinical presentation. There's a lot of subtlety in the antibiotic regime in NTB. So this will be at best a cursory overview of treatment. Antibiotic resistance testing is recommended for all patients. It can direct treatment if first-line agents are not well tolerated due to side effects. The treatments generally include a macrolide such as azithromycin. This is now a mainstay of therapy as long as there is no resistance, which there usually isn't in first-time treatment, but it often develops, especially if you're treating a reinfection or if the initial infection was not adequately treated. Then, a rifamycin like rifampin or rifambutin, and ethambutol. And sometimes we add a fourth agent, usually an aminoglycoside. Recently, inhaled amikacin has been in vogue. If that seems like a lot, keep in mind that these are usually initiated in a PICC line. They can't be done orally. This has to be IV. And treatment is until sputum culture is negative for 12 months which means that usually treatment lasts 15 to 18 months. That is a long time. Additionally, all of these meds have side effects. I'll list off some side effects and we'll try and match them to the drug class. GI distress, abnormal LFTs, leukopenia, impaired vision or color vision, decreased auditory function slash vestibular toxicity, decreased renal function, peripheral neuropathy, and prolonged QTC. I'll give you a second to try and match them, and then we'll do it together. Okay, let's do it together. Macrolides. This is a mainstay of treatment, and they can cause GI distress, abnormal LFTs, and prolonged QT. Rifamycins can cause leukopenia, abnormal LFTs, and more GI distress. Ethambutol can cause visual issues, peripheral neuropathy, and yes, even more GI distress, because everyone loves a little bit of diarrhea. Aminoglycosides can cause hearing and vestibular problems, peripheral neuropathy, and renal impairment. And while most people don't suffer from all of these side effects, it is very likely that if they're being treated for over a year, they'll probably suffer from at least one, if not a few. Basically, this has been a very long, windmered way of saying that even once diagnosed, appropriate antibiotic treatment for NTB is no walk in the park. It's more like a slog through a long, challenging play from the 1800s while being assailed by tinglys, dizziness, and lots 
and lots of diarrhea. So, thank you for accompanying me on this confusing journey about MTB. I hope you learned something. I'll see you next week. Cheers. This Rounds on Me is written and recorded by Ben Salwin. Audio production is by Ali Salwin. Theme music is A Rush of Blood to the Heart by Mr. Ruiz, which is licensed under an attribution non-commercial 4.0 international license. Cover art is by Aaron Ergen. For more episodes and info, check us out on This Rounds on Me pod at podbean.com.